You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I am speaking with Sean Round. She is currently a PhD candidate in American literature at the University of Cambridge. Her research focuses, as she puts it, on little literary magazines in the U.S. South from the 1920s to the mid-1940s and their relationship to the Southern Renaissance. As such, she has delved into Lillian Smith and Paula Snelling's work on South Today, specifically looking at how the magazine traces Smith's artistic trajectory in the lead up to the 1944 publication of Strange Fruit. Today, we will speak with her about South Today, reading Lillian Smith and Paula Snelling in England, and her research. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Matthew. It's, you know, I I met you a few, probably a couple years ago um, Mm -hmm. when we were doing the virtual book clubs, and you've been involved in those. I know with the time difference, it's not the easiest thing, but you kind of connected with this over your work with South Today. So, I mean, let me just kind of start with that question of your research focuses on literature of the United States South and your Mm -hmm. undergraduate thesis focused on the British reception of William Faulkner, which sounds fascinating. But can you talk some about what drew you to researching Southern literature and how you first discovered Lillian Smith and her work? Yeah, I mean, definitely my way in was through Faulkner. I read the Sound and the Fury as a teenager. And it was kind of one of the rare instances where I read the introduction before the book. (laughs) And I'm so glad I did because I would not have understood a word if I hadn't. I had a professor during um, a master's program, which actually laid out and said, this is what each section is. And I was like, if she Mm -hmm. did not do that, I would have been completely and utterly lost. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that book kind of got me started thinking about what is the South and then also kind of what is the South's relationship to the world? And then I started my undergrad and I uh, I thought I've started reading William Faulkner and he seems really interesting. And I think Americans study him a lot, but we don't really study him very much in the UK. And I kind of, why is that? Which led me to writing about Faulkner's British reception, which was quite hostile. And then I kind of came across Smith by accident. I went into my master's planning to write more about Faulkner and then kind of stumbled on Smith and her writings about Europe and the way she kind of conceptualized the war. And I ended up writing about um, that for my master's. I wrote about kind of Smith's conceptualizations of Europe in Strange Fruit and in Killers um, and looked a little bit at South today. Can um, can you can you expand upon that some because um, mm-hmm. and during the Lillian during the Lillian Smith Studies course I'm teaching this semester that's something we've been talking about and trying to really kind of trace her political trajectory from kind of that 30s and 40s through the 60s mm-hmm. and one of the things that we've been focused on in some of the readings is actually her kind of response to the to the war to World War II so can you kind of expand upon that just a little bit. In the magazine, she very much starts out as an isolationist Mm -hmm. and she broadly maintains that stance, but she uses British imperialism, but also Nazism as Mm -hmm. this kind of analogy for racism in the South, as as in kind of, oh, you know, 
in the South, you're reading these things on the news, but actually the, there's, there's a quote where she's like, we're flashing a mirror in each other's faces, us and the British. That may be in Biden, the world with all Confederate bills, which mm-hmm. is very, very much aligned with that. And she's, she's talking in there, of course, too, about the fact that there's something, I don't remember if this is Robert Brinkmeyer who, who brings up, or maybe in a quote from Smith that's, that talks about her kind of reticence of coming to the aid of Britain because of the, because of the imperialism and those types yeah, of discussions. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that comes up a lot in South Today where she's thinking kind of, okay, there's this war going on, but we need to fix our own issues, you know, and, and people, and she complains that, that people like the um, Chapel Hill liberals are all mm-hmm. kind of saying, oh, it's not the time. It's not the time to sort out racism. And she's saying, kind of, well, when will it be the time? Right. And then there's this whole, it may be in that same issue where there's this kind of dialogue between um, somebody in India, somebody, uh, a U- somebody in the U.S. and then Blacks, mm-hmm. right? And this whole kind of agitation speech of now is not the time. I mean, they published, I forgot the guy's name, but they published something from, from an African-American guy who refused to you know, go in the draft. And he said basically the same reason she's saying is because look at the way you treat us here. Right. Yeah. And Polly Murray and Henry Babcock had a, had an essay in there about pacifism. And I think she was very much a pacifist um, from her time in China is kind of where that seems to stem from. But there's, there's one play too, that she, that I found, she says the campers wrote about 1930, uh, 1940, like right before um, the United States involvement in the war. And her counselors didn't like it because they said it was unpatriotic because it's basically saying all these same things. Mm-hmm. And I'm amazed that we found, we actually have a recording of that play um, and actually have the, the manuscript from the UGA archives. It's really a fascinating kind of insight into her kind of mindset at the time. And then the Biden New World with Confederate Bills is when we're in the thick of the war in 43. Anything else you can kind yeah. of, you, go ahead. Um, no, I was just thinking about the, uh, the play you're talking about because she prints a couple of these plays in South Today. I find it so interesting thinking about her running this camp at the same time as, as becoming a cultural critic and, and then right. eventually a kind of social critic. I think that does link with her pacifism where she's kind of seeing who is being brought up in the South and thinking about the future and kind of rejecting this narrative of, of war. So yeah, I think, I think the summer camp is such an interesting kind of background to so much of Smith's writing. What's really interesting about that play, and it's an unpublished play, and like I didn't know about it until we found those records at the camp, and she writes to Glenn Rainey about it after that summer in September 1940, and it's really interesting what she says, thinking about kind of that play and her counselor saying it's unpatriotic. I'm just going to kind of read what what she says here, a couple of things. She starts off by saying that we had a good summer, but less encouraging to me as I watched war creep into our midst and twist feeling and thought. Our girls talked more about God, about hell, about believing every word of the Bible than in all my camp experience I have heard before. And she's been doing the camp since 25. They were mm-hmm. less tolerant of the black of blacks this summer, some holding bravely to their decency and, and other, but others wavering, more inclined to defend the South, America, to hate Hitler and Germans. And even so, we had good talks. And then she says, until I wrote a little play called 1940, A Play for a Young Girl. And she talks about, like I said, the fact that counselors found it unpatriotic and then really pushed back about her. And then her kind of discussion of that's really interesting. 
because she says it was hard to stand up to the war mob. Basically, I think she kind of labels him like as a war mob. This kind of, you know, yeah, she does. Um, I had no more influence during that brief dissension when my loyal staff turned into a war mob than if I had been the cook. Right. And really what mm-hmm. she's getting at with that play, and I think elsewhere, too, is this unfettered patriotism that makes you blind to what's happening to yourself. And she, she ends it. I think the letter ends really poignantly, too. She says to Rainey, it is not the physical part of war that sickens me as it is on what is happening to our minds and feelings. Yeah, I, I, and that's kind of so much about of what Smith is about. It's about the, these minds and feelings and the impact of social events on our kind of psychology. And I think that, that tie, that's a kind of thread that ties into all of her different kinds of writing. Yeah, and with all this, I don't see her as saying that what we are doing fighting against the Nazis is wrong. Mm. But she's, she's pointing out that you have issues here on yourself and how can you, because one of the shifts you kind of see politically with her is in the fifties when she's vehemently anti-communist, which I think comes from partly McCarthyism and other things like that too. But her continued argument that Asian nations specifically went communist because they saw what our democracy did. Right. I think it's this really kind of interesting kind of political moment. And the fact that she's very much, I don't think she ever says she's an isolationist, but but just the fact that she's like, tend to your own house before you tend to the house of others. Absolutely. So you're looking at the literary magazine, right? And South mm-hmm. Today was from 1936 to about 1945. And this is your dissertation project. What are yeah. some of the other magazines besides South Today um, that you look at for your current work? And along with that, what kind of similarities and or differences do you see in a and their approaches, those magazines' approaches, period, compared with South Today. And I know that one of them you look at is Contempo, which was out of UNC Chapel Hill. Yeah, so, so Contempo is um, the one I kind of look at from, from the early 30s. Mm-hmm. And that's a very, very different magazine to Lillian's, where it's almost trying to completely avoid the label of southernness. Or it kind of, it chooses, it pick, the magazine kind of, the editors pick and choose when they want to be Southern. So they have two very successful issues about the Scottsboro trial. And they have Langston Hughes but, in there and others, right? Yeah. So they, they published Langston Hughes and it's a really interesting incident where he he's on a tour of the South and he, he comes to speak at Chapel Hill and they kind of, the editors arrange that the mm-hmm. issue of the magazine comes out the same day that he arrives so that it kind of causes this scandal and it kind of, it almost leads to him being driven out of the town. You know, he manages to get his, he manages to do his talk, but there's kind of armed guards there. And you can tell Anthony Batista, one of the editors, he constantly writes about, oh, this is breaking racial codes, but not in a way so much to make Langston Hughes unsafe, but almost in a way to be deliberately provocative and, and uh, controversial. Whereas, you know, Smith, comes from a much different perspective where she's thinking about how to include black people in writing of the South, not kind of as a, not in a sensational way, but to broaden the possibilities of what Southerness can be. So in that way, I think that they're hugely different magazines. And I think it's, I actually just read about that incident with Hughes. I'm reading right mm-hmm. now for actually the Lillian Smith Studies class. Um, Elizabeth Gillespie McRae's Mother of Massive Re- Mothers of Massive Resistance: White Women in the Politics of White Supremacy. And the chapter I just read 
talks about Neil, uh, Nell Battle Lewis, who was in North Carolina and who was very much involved in labor issues and things like that. But she talks about what happened with Hughes and she talks about how, I don't remember everything I have marked here, but she talks about the fact it was a backlash to against the against UNC's president. And really kind of these discussions of, because Lewis seems very kind of progressive, but she also has these undertones of racism and white supremacy that she's upholding, even though she's very progressive. And I don't know if Contempo was like that because McCray talks about Lewis, you know, reading Hughes, reading McKay, reading all of these Harlem Renaissance authors, praising them and things like that too. But then on the flip side, being very white supremacist in her kind of depictions, her kind of discussions, her policies and things, mm-hmm. um, some of her policies. And Smith seems a total opposite that she's all in, right? And so it's really kind of, I think, interesting maybe to look at those two together. Now I haven't looked at Contempo much. I think you're the one who introduced mm-hmm. me to Contempo. And yeah, what is the- and I think... I was going to say there's, there's another comparison with another magazine I look at in uh, New Orleans, The Double Dealer. That magazine, they publish some pieces from Jean Toomer that go on to be in Kane. But there are a couple of other pieces from Kane that they, they reject. What did they publish? So they publish with Storm Ending, Harvest Song, and I think it's called Nora in The Double Dealer, but becomes Calling Jesus. But they reject... Corintha and Fern and <laughs> broadly the reason that they reject it is they they kind of they write a letter to Tuma saying oh our audiences couldn't possibly handle this so you know that there's there's that willingness to publish African-American authors but only kind of on their terms which is and what Lewis that, sounds like yeah exactly it's I think it's a running thread in in that period in the south and Smith kind of is reacting against that Lewis's thing for kind of, it seems like for, for African-American art is it has to be the folk. It has to be the dialect coming out of the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, if it's not, if it's not dialect and folksy, it's not authentic, which makes me wonder part of the double dealer printing that just those poems is part of that too. You know, I'm really, I'm really interested now to go back and look at Smith's buying a new world with the Confederate bills. Cause she strongly goes after Southern liberals in that, in that piece. Yeah. And that's the one in 1943 where she's also talking about the war and talking about the South in relation to British imperialism and, and Nazi Germany, too. So there's a lot kind of going on in that period and a lot of stuff that we don't talk about, but there's affected a lot of kind of politics or at least political thinking that now that I'm thinking about it, you know, through the 50s and the 60s in the United States and possibly even globally. <laughs> so what so you look at the Double Dealer, Contempo, any other magazines that you look at? Yeah. So uh, with the Double Dealer, I look at um a Richmond magazine called The Reviewer. And that has an in, its own interesting relationship to race where they, they publish a lot of stories by an author called Julia Peterkin, who was kind of a white woman living on a plantation in South Carolina. But all her stories are about black people on the plantation and um, they're kind of all quite grotesque, unsettling. And so there's a very interesting relationship going on there with kind of local colour fiction and kind of dialect writing and then what I'm kind of getting on to now in my final chapter is you know the agrarians and the southern review who have a very kind of um you know Smith is I think quite deliberately reacting against them um and in early issues of the magazine she'll refer to the agrarians a lot so yeah, that, that's a whole kind of kettle of fish, really. But um, well, what what do you what is her kind of opposition to the agrarians that you found? So she's kind of she basically thinks that they're looking at the world through a very 
conservative lens, but one which is, one sec, I'm trying to find, I've got an example here. Let me just, this is an article where they're talking about, well, it's, it's an article by Snelling where she's talking about Southern fiction being a kind of chronic suicide using the kind of psychology of Carl Memminger. And she's talking about how Southern literature, they're, they're so stuck in a rut and so self-defensive that they're kind of causing their own death. And then Snelling references a bit later on, kind of, when the socio-philosopher is under compulsion to evade a central truth, we are likely to get a retrograde amnesia in the guide of neo-agrarianism. So this idea that, that agrarianism is forgetting the past or being selective about the past and avoiding the central truth, which to Snelling is that Southern literature has to address rapes. Right. It's, um, the, it's the lost cause narrative. And they're very specific about what Southern literature should be. Right. Um, and in that article, I think she says kind of in places other than the South, you know, you don't have to talk about race, maybe. But and she says to, in, in the South, to ignore African-Americans is to exemplify pathological blindness. So, you know, it's a psychology that you are being deliberately ignorant if you are not addressing the state of African-Americans, even in literature. And I, I found that really interesting because Lillian in 62, when she's talking to CBS interviewer, is like, we've hindered ourselves in the South because we have focused on race. It has hindered us. Our, our segregation has hindered us. Our creative energies, basically, is kind of what she says. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, and I really kind of think about that. And I like what Snelling says there because what I think about is, no, I don't think it's hindered our creative kind of expression because you, you get Faulkner, you get Ernest Gaines, you get Lillian Smith. I think that all good literature comes out of partly these struggles with us as human, you know, as us as humans existing in our existence, what we do with that existence and the things that we battle against. Mm -hmm. So I don't totally agree with her with that, but I think what she was getting at with kind of that quote is that it doesn't allow the individual to become fully human, which is something that we see throughout our work too, is how can we become fully human, our true selves? Um and I think that's that's her main issue with Faulkner. And that's something that comes up again and again in the magazine is she reviews Faulkner and it's this sense of frustration yeah. that her and Snelling identify him as extremely talented, but they're constantly disappointed that he isn't kind of getting to, to what they, to, they call him a symptom and brilliant symbol of the poison which permeates the core of our culture that he's kind of not getting to the heart of the matter, in their opinion. Well, it sounds like she never read To Kill a Mockingbird, but it sounds like Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, that she she, ne- she never gets to it. She gets to the edge, and then she just kind of falls off. Yeah. Just kind um, of leaves it hanging. So, you know, when I read pieces from the magazine, I'm constantly amazed, you know, because the essays that Smith and Snelling wrote – really kind of give us an insight into a different view of World War II. We kind of talked about this, mm-hmm. but there are more pieces in there and you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but are there any other pieces from the magazine that stand out to you that you would want readers to lead to or listeners to read? Yeah, I think, so I was talking a bit about their kind of characterization of Southern literature and there's a really great example of Smith's uh, column, her Dope with Lime column, mm-hmm. um, where she writes about the eight Southern ruts so like the ruts in uh, that, that people fall into in Southern literature. And they're, they're kind of so 
almost quite dead on, but also quite comical. You know, she talks about the manicurists who polish things, the antique dealers who deal with the past. And Thomas Wolfe and Faulkner are, are cast as the finger painters. So they get all their ideas down and then they swirl them around. And I think that's that's a really, it, it's quite a powerful um, column, but it's also, it, it's, it's quite funny. She can be so, her metaphors are so brilliant, but she can also be so kind of bitter. Um, and we talked a bit in the reading group about uh, her review of Gone with the Wind. <laughs> and I think that's that's one of the best pieces of the whole magazine. Um, and it's called like, One More Sigh for the Good Old South. And you can really sense her kind of disappointment that this is the novel that's being read as the kind of touchstone for Southern literature. You know, and she's like, oh, I too hoped that I would find the future of Southern literature, but it's not found here. <laughs> um, so, 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 so the impact of that, and I don't remember which it was, but Hitler either claimed the book or the film was his favorite or one mm. of his favorites. So, so the worldwide impact and the worldwide kind of, you know, impact of, of that, that reconstructed narrative, because in a recent podcast, too, we talked with a student from Romania and Dr. Bennett, who actually was on a Fulbright in Romania. And the student mentioned that, you know, what I knew about the U.S. South before I took this course was Gone with the Wind. Yeah, it's, right? it's so pervasive. I mean, right. it's it's not something I either read or watched until I was an adult, but it was something I grew up with knowing. And I think looking back, a lot of the images I had about the South were kind of direct descendants from its portrayal in Gone with the Wind. So, yeah, it, it's pretty pervasive. And I can I can understand Smith's just profound sense of disappointment and, and almost bitterness as well because she goes to interview Mitchell mm-hmm. um, before before writing the review and Mitchell doesn't give her the information that she wants and, and she writes something like she wants Mitchell to write something for the magazine and she's like oh can you just go crawl up on your divan and write something just like you wrote the novel you know like it should be easy for you so yeah I think that's if you want to read one bit from South Today that really gets to Smith's thoughts on Southern literature, I think that review of Mitchell is... is... And that's in either the first or second issue of the journal. Yeah, it's really early on. Um, um, and, and what's important too is, I mean, we have to remember, and I know most of our listeners probably know this, but like George Shiler and the NAACP were were battling against, you know, the novel when it came out. And then even Walter White and NAACP when the film came out in 39 so i mean this this was a long-standing thing and then you look at authors who responded like frank yerby with the fox as a hero and other authors too, who responded to gone with the wind but just kind of the ways that culture impacts us and she talks about that and a lot of the things she does too and kind of strange fruit i don't think is a reaction to gone with the wind but maybe could partly be seen as reactionary to faulkner and to others as well and one of the things that you're working on in your research is looking at smith's trajectory um, from the work she published in South Today to the publication and reception of Strange Fruit in 44. So can you just talk a little bit about how you see Smith growing as an artist from those early issues in, th- in 1936 to the publication of Strange Fruit and the end of the journal in kind of 45? And can you talk some about how we see the politics that she writes about in the magazine manifest themselves in the novel? That may be a broader question, but... Yeah, um, so, so Smith publishes... I think 10 pieces that I would consider to be kind of part of the world of strange fruit in, in the, not in the magazine. 
So by which I mean they're kind of set in Maxwell. Yeah. So she's got this idea of Maxwell from at least 1936, but it kind of starts as this novel called The Harris Children's Town mm-hmm. about a, a white family with, I think, six children. And the first kind of pieces you see in, in South Today are these children going about the world and having experiences of racism and segregation and, and at, from the perspective of a white child. And then it kind of morphs to more of what we understand as, as the novel. And the last kind of couple of bits of Strange Fruit in South of Today are pretty much the same as the novel. So you kind of see the trajectory of its growth as you're reading South Today. Um, but I think what's interesting to me is it goes from being this novel about a single white family's experiences of racism to being one about a community. Um, And I think one thing that's really interesting is she publishes a couple of sketches um, from this kind of world of Maxwell. And one of them is Dee and Bill, who do appear in Strange Fruit, but not very much. And it's this horrible sketch where Dee and Bill kind of hanging around and they're these kind of clearly nefarious, um, unpleasant figures and they throw coins at the ground and get African-Americans to pick them up. Um, And they see Nonny walk past. So it's the first time we see Nonny, I think, from from Strange Fruit is in this story. And they try and provoke her to fight another African-American. And then the story goes on to say about how Dee and Bill have killed African-Americans. And the sketch ends with this kind of very strong dialect from the perspective of these workers um, kind of praying to God for help. Um, so it's, it's, it's such a different piece than what ends up in Strange Fruit um, stylistically. And I think my kind of perspective is that she's written these kind of villain figures here. And the reason she minimizes that in the novel is that she's not really trying to identify specific villains in Strange Fruit. It's more the fact that there's a, a community that is upholding these principles of racism and segregation. And so, you know, there are individual people in Strange Fruit that you could think these, these people are contributing to the lynching at the end, but there's no kind of prevalent villain figure. Well, the prevalent figure is the psychosis of these systems. Yeah, right? exactly. So it, it becomes a novel about the ingrained psychological damage or I go back to that kind of pathological blindness and one thing that I see kind of develop in her writing leading up to the publication of Strange Fruit is a kind of uh, is a metaphor of weaving and texture mm-hmm. and the idea of this kind of illness and disease which I think is how she conceptualizes it weaving through the community um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't thought about that metaphor early with her. I, I see that metaphor when she talks about cancer after she's, of mm. course, diagnosed in the 50s. I mean, there's, there's a lot, I think, there. And the, the DM Bill thing I find interesting. I haven't read that story. I actually haven't read mm. I think, any of the stories in South Today. But I thought, really and what I'm thinking about, too, as, I'm, as you're talking about that, is this is kind of Faulkner-esque, very modernist, because it does shift yeah. from perspectives. It's, it's still very kind of, I want to say, classical that's not the right word but it's, it's more kind of realism but there's so much kind of modernist influence in there too you see i think how the journal influenced her 
the people mm-hmm. they published in that journal and the thoughts that were coming in, I think that those, I think, had a huge impact and influence on the formulation of that novel too. Yeah, definitely. And there's times, so there's, there's an example where she publishes a chapter from Strange Fruit um, in about 1942. And it's a chapter where Tracy is kind of hanging around with, with Henry and uh, Henry, I think he insults a white girl and Henry's mum like beats him. And Tracy's so shocked and his whole world is shaken and he kind of learns about racism. Right. Um, when they're when they're kids, but, right? In the bike. Yeah, yeah. When that. when they're children, yeah. And Smith, I think, quite deliberately puts this story in the magazine directly after a story by Sterling Brown, an African-American writer. And then she puts her story also directly before an article kind of complaining about an Atlanta newspaper uh refusing to um acknowledge the death of quite important African-American in Atlanta. Um, And so she's placing her stories about racism within this kind of broader context of African-American writing in the South and African-American politics. And all of these things are going on and it's, it's a very different context to see the stories, but you learn more, I think, about how Strange Fruit came into being and, and the factors that influenced it. Yeah, and that's really fascinating kind of research because seeing the trajectory of an artist as they're kind of working through these ideas, I think is very important. And we have Mm -hmm. that with this. I mean, we have a lot of stuff that she lost during that fire in the fifties, but we have these journals to kind of trace that a little bit too and other things too. So looking forward to to reading more about that, but let's end with this. So kind of a a hypothetical question. Um, I saw that you did a 60 second interview about kind of your grad work. And this question was asked during that. So I thought I would kind of repeat this question. But if you could throw a dinner party with yourself and Lillian Smith. So y'all two are there and four others. This could be artists, writers, whatever. You know, who would you invite and why? And then how would you imagine the conversation going? (laughs) Um, I, I think it's interesting. It's interesting to think of this question from the perspective of having Lillian with you because I think uh, (laughs) there's loads of people I think Lillian would have loved to have met so like and not not have loved to have met well yeah um so I think you know Freud would be Mm. so fascinating to have there I mean think about what kind of conversations they would have had I don't know I think maybe Lillian would kind of be in awe (laughs) I don't know she's um Freud kind of comes into her work so much right but I'd be really interested as well to have kind of people thinking and writing about race now. So, you know, um, people like Hannah Nicole Brown or like Tanahisi Coates, those kind of people who are really pressing at, at these issues. And another person who I'm a really big fan of. Um, so I'd like him there, but also uh, I'd be interested to see how Smith reacts to his, the, the novelist Percival Everett and particularly his most recent novel, the trees is about or broadly about Emmett Till and about the ongoing legacy of, of lynching in the United States. He has such a, a kind of tonal difference to Smith. You know, they're both very stylistic writers, but he's got this kind of acerbic un- underlying anger that's so prevalent in his work. And I, I'd be really interested to see how he would interact with someone like Lillian and how Lillian might respond to him. 
but also maybe just for some drama I'd like to see um Lillian and Margaret Mitchell reunited well I I was going to say Lillian and Margaret Mitchell or even Faulkner or even O'Connor yeah I know she had issues with O'Connor too but I mean for me there's I still need to do more effort I I thought you were going to say Paul Beatty at first in the sellout but I I really find that I think Freud would be very fascinating, like you said, because mm-hmm. of because of Paula Freud's influence on Paula and Lillian. I think would be would be really fascinating for me. I kind of think Frank Yerby too, because yeah. same time period, totally different kind of aesthetic, different way. Maybe Baldwin, because I know she had issues with Baldwin, but I just think what kind of conversations they can have. You know, there's just so many people I'm kind of thinking, you know, what would these conversations kind of be like? And that's always what the deal is, these hypotheticals. And they would disagree. I mean, I know they would disagree, but just just to imagine what they would say um, and, th- and think about even this moment, you know, not just mm. in the United States, but internationally as well, what they would kind of say about it. So, yeah, but they're only hypotheticals. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> So I appreciate you taking the time with us today and speaking with us about all your research and telling us more about the journal, because I've read some of the journal, but I haven't dove in as much as you have with everything. Yeah, I've read it all. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's quite long, really, because it's yeah. what, nine years. Um, but I think it's worth it. There's, there's so much in there. No, there is like every time, every time I kind of dig in and do like a search, because we have the whole thing digitized, I find something new. Whenever a name comes mm-hmm. up, I kind of like want to look up and see if she actually wrote about them. And the things that pop up in there are amazing. Yeah, well, they read so much. That's what astounds me is, is mm-hmm. how many books Smith and Snelling must have read and how they got the time. I have no idea. No, the, their library is full. Mm-hmm. So so if so if you make it over here and you get to go up there, you'll see the library and how how full it is. Yeah, well, hopefully one day. Hopefully so. All right, thank you for joining well, us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Lillian E. Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.